Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. The Decider Series is considering the impact of voters over 50 in 2018. To date, the series has explored America's largest Florida retirement community and Hispanic voters in Arizona. Visit politico.com slash the deciders to learn more. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, an anonymous senior administration official joins the show to reveal their identity. Just kidding. We're going to be talking about Ayanna Presley's defeat of 10-term incumbent Michael Capuano in a Democratic House primary in Massachusetts. That was the big election news on Tuesday. What does it say about where the Democratic Party is right now, and how is it like or not like what we saw on the other side in 2010 in the Tea Party wave that changed the GOP? Plus, we're going to sidestep some of the fireworks from the still ongoing Senate hearings over Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court appointment and put that nomination fight into some political context. A reminder to our listeners, before we get started, to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And one more note before we begin, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, September 6th, so it's all up to date as of then. Unfortunately, we're going to miss the Delaware primaries and presumably some fireworks at the Kavanaugh hearings, but what can you do? The Nerdcast must be taped. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. As usual, we have Senior Politics Editor Charlie Matessian. Good to see you as always, Charlie. Hi, Scott. Also in the studio, our polling guru and uh, campaign watcher, Steve Shepard. Hi, Steve. Hi, Scott. And uh, let's see. We've got on the phone from Boston our Massachusetts playbooker, Lauren Dzenski. Lauren, hi. Hey, great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. And also on the line from California, Politico's national political correspondent, David Siders. David, thanks for coming back. Good to be here. All right, let's dive right into our first data point. That is zero. That's how many black women Massachusetts has sent to Congress ever. But that is all but certain to change next year uh, after Boston City Councilwoman Ayanna Presley knocked off Mike Capuano in a Democratic primary this week. Capuano had uh, represented the seat for 10 terms. There is no Republican running. So this was basically the general election. And Presley came at him uh, from the left as kind of an energetic uh, challenger promising uh, uh, you know, new, new energy and a different kind of representation in the seat. And and won, and you know, for the second time this year, knocked off a ten-term uh, Democrat, following up on uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's victory over Joe Crowley. So, Lauren, start us off. Tell us about Presley, how she got to this point, and how she won her primary. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this was this was an interesting race from the jump. Ayanna Presley. Even though she, this could kind of be framed, this election itself as a insider versus outsider uh, race. That's that's not the case. Ayanna Presley is a quintessential Massachusetts political insider. She was on the Boston City Council for ten years. She was actually the first woman of color elected to the Boston City Council ten years ago, and since then has really become this very strong force 
in politics in Boston. And she's crisscrossed the country on Democratic uh, campaigns, uh, stumping for folks like Hillary Clinton. So she, she certainly isn't outside the normal political circles. What was remarkable about her candidacy, however, is that she challenged a longtime incumbent who was squeaky clean for all intents and purposes. You know, Michael Capuano was, you know, he, he didn't even go to Trump's inauguration. And so for then to have Ayanna Presley challenge him from the left and say, yes, you know, we may not necessarily vote all that differently when it comes to votes in the House, but my frame of reference from my lived experiences make me a better choice to represent this district. And obviously, that was that ended up being a pretty compelling argument to uh, to to the the Democratic primary voters in this district, right? I mean, the, the, there were a couple policy differences, uh, corporate PACs, and uh, some stuff about the the uh, ICE uh, agency, but but more or less, like you said, they were really aligned with each other on a lot of things. It was more about the you know bringing a activism to the office, right? Oh, most definitely. Yeah, the the kind of awkward shorthand of writing about this race, especially in, in the first couple months, was that both candidates acknowledged that there are few, if any, policy differences between the two of them. And then you kind of had to get into it a little bit more. And and so it was really fascinating to see on the trail and kind of in action, especially the, the last couple days before the primary itself, where Presley in her stump speech was saying that it was up to her campaign and their ultimate success to draw out new voters and to activate new voters to become a part of the process and that it wasn't that Capuano had done something wrong, but that this district just needed new representation and it just needed a new face and a new voice. David and Charlie, I want I, I was hoping you guys can weigh in about the the national implications of this and how this fits in more broadly to how the Democratic Party is shaping itself uh, in the early years of the Trump era, uh, David, you just you just wrote a story, uh, kind of comparing what we've seen in the 2018 primaries so far back to the 2010 Tea Party, a mirror image, obviously, in in the opposite party. Can can you can you tell us a little bit about that and how where it holds and doesn't? Yeah, I, th- I think where it holds probably is is this anti-establishment angst that you really saw, you, you know, not even not even coming out of. Trump's election, although that helped, but out of the primary in 2016, where so many progressive Democrats were just furious at at the establishment. Uh, And I I think that then was amplified by Trump's election, and he became something of a litmus test for, you know, are you a Democrat enough um, in this era? But then, you know, as I think where where it doesn't hold is is so far in the force of it. Progressives are shifting or, or molding the party, but you don't necessarily see the establishment right now quivering in the way that maybe the Republican establishment did in in 2010. So I think that that force isn't quite there. And and Charlie, we've also seen a little bit more synergy, I think, between uh, between those two sides, if we could call them that, right, in Democratic primaries so far this year. We've seen a lot of adoption of progressive positions by the so-called mainstream or establishment candidates, we've seen uh, a, a lot of primaries that have, that have played out pretty on pretty nice terms, actually, uh, at the end of the day. 
Yeah, I think that's true, but it's because they have to, not because they want to. Mm. I mean, they can see, you know, the the establishment, these incumbents can see uh, a wave building. The party is changing. The party is evolving. Uh, You know, whether you call what's happening, you know, a Tea Party movement of the left or not, something's happening there. Uh, I think there are some similarities, even though a lot of or a lot of progressives uh, I've talked to hate the idea of being compared to the Tea Party movement because they find they found the Tea Party movement appalling. But there are some similarities. I think one of them would be. Um, so the Tea Party movement, to me, was always fueled by ideology, uh, whereas I think the progressive movement that, that we're seeing right now is fueled by uh, a genera- generation, uh, a race. And what I mean by that is, so you've got this congressional leadership, the septuagenarian Democratic House leadership that's you know seen as kind of feckless and and not fighting hard enough for for progressive values and so uh, you're seeing a lot of young challengers come out of the woodwork and and pull off these massive upsets like Presley who was you know pretty much half uh, cap well not half cap on his age but dramatically younger than Capuana. You saw Joe Crowley upset by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So that's the generational part. And I think the racial part is you see now it you know gets the backdrop of. What many Democrats see as the party's future, which is the uh, highly diverse younger Obama coalition, you see African Americans, uh, I I think, flexing their muscle more in the party. I mean, for many years, Democrats took the African American vote for granted, didn't pay that much attention. And now what I think you're seeing is a generation of African-American politicians that are really stepping into the limelight. They are uh, claiming the gubernatorial nominations in their states, whether you're talking about Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Andrew Gillum in Florida. Uh, you know, there, there's lots of folks like that. And I think that the party now recognizes and is giving it the, its proper respect and due to uh, to a block of the party vote that is so essential to their success. And I think you saw that in Presley's case because Presley was, I give her credit, she was very upfront about the way she handled the question because her, her argument was fairly explicit about why to take out Michael Capuano. She was saying, uh, I mean, that a younger woman of color probably brings more to the table than an older white male incumbent, all things being equal in terms of ideology, I still probably bring more to the table in a majority-minority district. You know, she never really hid that. Uh, I, th- I think she was honest about it. And in the end, people felt the same way, that against that, that backdrop, she was the better candidate. But the one last point I'd make is what we need to watch, though, is then can progressive forces replicate these wins outside big cities because they haven't yet. This is a really liberal district. This is, you know, Boston and Cambridge. Uh, and you saw Ocasio-Cortez's victory is in Queens. But the question will be, can they expand beyond the big cities where progressive forces have really made their mark? And that's certainly something we'll be watching in the general election. I mean, Steve, you just completed a massive survey basically of every House, Senate and governor's race in the country for Politico's inaugural race rating. So what's what's your view on that question as uh, in terms of how how this is shaping up can you know is are we going to see this uh this wave of progressive energy of uh, uh new types of candidates of african-american candidates in in florida and elsewhere uh find success in in november do you think well i'd urge everybody to go check out all of the, all of our race ratings that, that we posted uh this week uh that that's a great question, Scott, and I think that remains to be seen, but but here's where we have it. Um, both the gubernatorial races in Florida with Andrew Gillum and in Georgia with Stacey Abrams, we have rated as toss-ups. Polls show that they're very competitive. A Quinnipiac poll this week out in Florida has Andrew Gillum up with a three-point lead over Ron DeSantis. So there is certainly the possibility for um, 
the this wave of candidates not just to change the landscape within the party or within a party conference in Congress when when people like Ocasio Cortez and and uh, Ayanna Presley come to Congress in the new year. There's there's a possibility to change the entire electoral landscape. Um, if some of these folks get elected, but these are among the most competitive races. Florida and Georgia are among the most competitive gubernatorial and most consequential gubernatorial races in the country this year. Um, and we, we hope you will track them with us. Uh, but the, they would bring really marked change uh, to the political landscapes of the states of the entire region uh, in the southeast in, in these two cases and uh, two states that are going to be critical to whichever candidate wins the 2020 presidential election when it comes to the Electoral College. David, you're you're already spending uh, a lot of your time kind of focusing on that that question of how how everything that's happening this year relates to to what we're going to be watching in 2019 and 2020 as the uh, as the presidential primaries heat up on the on the Democratic side. Um, what 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 are, what are you taking away from that in 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 terms of 2020 right now? It seems so so split. If you look at a primary like what's happening, what what, what happened in Florida last week or in Massachusetts the other day, and then you compare that to you know, primaries in, in the Midwest, uh, where some of these more traditional candidates, well, traditional, I mean, older and white candidates are doing better. It it, it seems like it, it will be a fraught primary because there are these two competing views of, you know, where the party should go and how the party should appeal to a general election audience. And I, I'm, I'm just really curious to see how that how that plays out. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, it, it maybe that's part of the reason why the out party often does so well in a midterm, right? Because they they have the flexibility to choose different people in different places, right? And you can you know, they're they're choosing a different type of candidate for governor in the Midwest than they are in Florida or Arizona, whereas when obviously when you're choosing a presidential nominee, that that person is the nominee everywhere. We're well past the the era of the stalking horse uh, candidate. Uh, Lauren, I, w- I want to bring things back to Massachusetts here uh, at the end. Obviously, we started out talking about Presley and kicking off this conversation. It strikes me there is a huge uh, amount of ambition now, uh, uh, rising stars coming up through the Massachusetts congressional delegation. You've got Presley, who's going to be joining next year, who's been, as you said, working up to this through the Boston City Council. Uh, you've got Seth Moulton, who people are talking about as a potential presidential candidate. Maybe you've got Joe Kennedy the third, who people are talking about as a future star. Catherine Clark is getting attention in in Washington. Um, how how does this all how does this all sort itself out? Do you think are some of these people going to be running for governor or senate in a few years, or do you do you think you know, maybe we're going to see one of them run for president? Maybe in Moulton. What uh, it, it seems like the house is is going to be a little too small for some of these people before long. Yeah, it's funny. The the bottlenecking of, of ambition in Massachusetts is kind of a longstanding pastime of trying to figure out where exactly all that energy is going to kind of head out. Uh, because, yeah, no, the, the house isn't necessarily all, you know, big enough for all of them. And I think it's fair to say that not all of them see a future for themselves in the house. Uh, definitely keep an eye on Joe Kennedy. Definitely keep an eye on Seth Moulton. Catherine Clark, I think, sees a path for herself uh, through the current Democratic Party kind of as it is, is is positioned to to be in a very significant leadership position. And, you know, don't sleep on Ayanna Presley. She really, I think, is going to take Washington by force. And I, I don't I don't think we all have have fully processed what exactly comes next. And not for nothing, there's also the winner 
of the third congressional district race up in uh, Merrimack Valley for Nikki Songus's old seat. We actually don't know who's won yet. There's a recount uh, because there, there's about a 50 point difference between uh, the the first and second place finishers, Dan Coe and Lori Trahan. F- 50 vote, not 50 point, right? Right, right. Yeah, 50 vote. So it's 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 incredibly, incredibly thin margin. So that's also going to be another incredibly uh, interesting race and um, an individual to watch for whoever wins. I mean, that that race in and of itself, aside from the fact that there were 10 candidates who were running, kind of revolved around everyone's opposition to the Trump agenda and how hard they were all going to push back against Trump. And so that certainly won't be whoever wins that seat certainly won't be someone who sits on the backbench quietly and waits for their committee assignments and says, please and thank you. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, this is a state that's had such a big impact on the Democratic Party nationally. And you had for years, you had Kerry and Kennedy sitting there in, in, in the Senate and kind of occupying those seats. And like you said, bottling up a lot of a lot of ambition. But it just seems like it's all getting uncorked. Well, politics, Scott, like everything else is about luck and timing. Uh, You know, we've seen these bottlenecks in in states dominated by one party so often sort themselves out uh, with who has the right timing and who's got the better luck. Mike Capuano tried to run statewide a couple of times, most recently for Senate uh, after Ted Kennedy passed away. Steve Lynch in South Boston, congressman with a more conservative record. He tried to run for Senate Uh, After John Kerry became secretary of state, he lost the primary to Ed Markey. These things work themselves out, and it will be fascinating to see, you know, both senators, uh, Elizabeth Warren, very likely to win uh, uh, another term this year. But on the older side, Ed Markey on the older side, the gubernatorial nomination against Charlie Baker after he wins reelection this year for that seat in 2022 when it comes open, these are going to be big opportunities for Democrats, and they're going to spend the next couple of years kind of positioning themselves. It's going to be fascinating to watch. It's going to be a really great story. And uh, Lauren Dzinski is going to be there They're covering it. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, esteemed colleagues. It's been a delight. <laughs> and uh, David, thanks for hopping on the phone with us as well. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, Steve, a big thank you to you as well. Always. All right. Charlie is going to stick around. Coming up, we've got a check on the mood at the White House after another roller coaster of a week. And we're going to be talking about Brett Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court. But first, a word from a sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by AARP. Politico magazine series The Deciders examines voters over 50 in key battleground states this election cycle. To date, The series has explored voters over 50 from America's largest retirement community in Florida who are motivated to vote by a desire to find a bygone era of traditional American values. The series has also explored whether Arizona will finally turn blue this election cycle. Visit politico.com slash the deciders to follow the series and learn more. All right, we are going to move on to our next data point, which is 13. The chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Chuck Grassley, managed to get 13 words into the hearing for Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination before he was interrupted by Democratic Senator Kamala Harris. Brett Kavanaugh. Mr. Chairman. To serve as Associate Justice. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to be recognized for a question before we proceed. It made for good TV, but we're going to get some perspective here on the politics of this nomination hearing from Chris Cadillago from the Politico White House team. Chris, great to have you back again. 
Yeah, honored to be the lodestar of segment two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should also mention Chris is a veteran of California politics, but let's jump into that that lodestar comment for a second. Before we get into Kavanaugh, I want to ask you about the mood in the White House after the New York Times took the rare step of publishing an op-ed from an unnamed senior administration official uh, yesterday in which the writer basically says there are people way up in the administration actively working to undermine some of the president's priorities and rein him in. Uh is it like DEFCON 5 at the White House? Or wait, DEFCON 5 is the, isn't DEFCON 5 peace? I think DEFCON 1. Is it DEFCON 1 at the White House right now? Yeah, I mean, we say this so often that it sort of lost, uh, loses its meaning. But this, the reaction we were getting, text messages and calls and stuff in, in the immediate aftermath, uh, w- was pretty bleak. I mean, people were, um, you know, p- people were just had no idea what was going on. Um, very few, if any, had any heads up that this was going to publish and it was pushed out by the by the New York Times. People were already um, pretty up in arms and sort of there was a lot of finger pointing going on over the Woodward book. So this the, the timing of this and the way that it dropped and also the president's reaction. Mm-hmm. And it's like pouring pouring gasoline on a fire a little bit that was already burning. Yeah, he uh, him sort of spinning around in that room and making a statement about how the New York Times may not even exist uh, right now if it weren't for him. Um, you could just see he was seething. It kind of reminded me of uh, Denzel in the um, in the scene in, uh, where he said, King Kong ain't got nothing on me. <laughs> Training day. Uh, all right. Well, I think that's I think that's a good place to, to leave it. Unless, Chris, you know the you happen to know the name of the writer and you want to break that as a Nerdcast exclusive. I don't. But Nancy Pelosi had a guest this morning. Oh, yeah. It was Mike Pence. Of oh, course, Pence. oh, did she? She did. Yeah. She said that, which was... <laughs> Okay. All right. Let's move on to Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, we should say off the top that everything that's happening in the Senate this week about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings is a type of political theater. Um, Charlie, if the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee got a year to review documents related to Kavanaugh, would any of them change their minds and and vote for him? (laughs) Well, I think we all know the answer. No. I mean, this thing has already been baked. Uh, There. The politics of it are such that there is not a single uh, Democrat uh, who can afford – other than the the, Demo- the red state Democrats that have all the Trump pressures back home. Uh, when you put them aside, there's not a single Democrat in, in the caucus who can afford to support Kavanaugh even if they wanted to, even if they uh, – for reasons of Senate tradition or Senate prerogatives. They're never going to support Kavanaugh because the base would go ballistic. In fact, it's what's amazing is that it's the, – the, the base is so uh, revved up and amped up these days that we're actually having a conversation about Chuck Schumer's future because he's not stopping a, a nomination that he can't stop. I mean there's nothing he can do really and yet he is under the gun for that. So it just goes to show you how high the stakes are and, and how high the emotions are running because of the you know the ambit of, of what uh, a Supreme Court uh, justice can can do. Chris, I, w- I want to uh, ask you this question, not as a current White House reporter, but as a former California politics reporter who's covered Kamala Harris's rise. And she was out in front of this in the in the hearings uh, from the from the beginning of them earlier this week. And I, I think there's a through line from what we just talked about with Ayanna Presley's primary victory in Massachusetts and her promising not necessarily to be an ideologically different representative than Mike Capuano, but to be a more activist member. And what we see happening with Democrats in the Senate Judiciary, led by people like Harris, who are not content to just ask tough questions of Kavanaugh and score points within the the process of the committee hearing, but 
uh, but object to the whole, the fact that this is happening and try and gum up the works of the committee hearing and protest uh, the fact that documents haven't been released and that um, Kavanaugh is unconscionably conservative in their minds. Yeah, a lot of Democratic activists out there don't see Donald Trump as a legitimate president. They don't see uh, this pick in Brett Kavanaugh as a legitimate uh, pick. They don't see this seat being up um, as as legit. I mean, they question everything. We were seeing tweets flying around from the opening statements uh, that that uh, when the opening statements came out from folks like Harris and, and Senator Cory Booker, basically wanting these senators to stand up and leave. I mean, they they people out there are so upset that they don't even want them to participate in a process that they think is so flawed. And for her, it's it's interesting because I think the 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 tack she's taken and and what her advisors have really pushed on is for her to have uh, organic moments. Um, and this is a committee she sits on. This is literally her job to push. And um, it, it's an interesting break from, you know, when she was attorney general in California and she was very much sort of, you know, I'm here to enforce the law and I'm here to, uh, you know, not come out and take positions in this in this Senate seat. She's really been able to like to push things. And I think the timing has worked out well for her because that's really what the, the party wants right now. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is also getting something politically from this nomination as well, right? This is uh, this this stands to benefit him politically uh, heading into the midterms, as we've seen with some of his other judicial uh, appointments. Yeah, I think that the flip side of that is that people tend to know that Republicans at the moment have the votes. They see that this would be the second uh, Supreme Court appointment for him. He tried very hard and the White House tried very hard to reset the narrative after the first few rough months of the administration when they were able to get Neil, Neil Gorsuch on the court and tried to really sort of there were still people who felt like this could be, you know, a ho-hum type administration. He had yet to fire um, Jim Comey. Um, it, there, the the healthcare repeal had yet to really blow up. There, the, a lot of the setbacks and a lot of the things we're seeing this week. You know, there were no uh, books out yet. The Michael Wolf book and and, and some of these others. Um, so he thought that he could somehow reset the narrative and and that he would do it by by using the first Supreme Court pick. The thing about now is you know, there's really no one out there. Polling shows this. You know, Republicans will say it. Democrats will say it. There's there's just nothing out there that suggests that. While he might get a small bump that might last a couple of days, um, that he's really going to be able to define any part of his presidency by having a second Supreme Court. But there's just too much else going on. Charlie, this this all kind of feeds into your long running thing about all politics is base politics right now, in your view. Right. And we're seeing that play out with the on both sides with the Supreme Court. Sure. I mean, every statement, every action, every backdrop, every optic that we see out of the White House these days, even the hiring of Bill Shine, is all about uh, underscoring to the base that the president is with them and keeping them in the fold. I mean, there's n- even by White House, uh, historic White House standards, it's it's remarkable uh, the way they operate. And it's partly because there is no ideological mooring. They don't believe in anything. It is in many ways, I think, what what the anonymous contributor to The New York Times wrote about. It's an amoral presidency that doesn't it doesn't move according to any fixed principles. And as a result of that, you know, the only thing that matters is reelection if he decides to run again. And uh, I think it's it's hard for official Washington. I think it's hard for people like us that watch this stuff to to understand that because it's so uh, it's such a departure from what we're accustomed to. And I mean, I don't 
and I don't want to sound naive here about the role politics always plays in, in White Houses. It does. I mean, the Obama White House was incredibly political. Uh, the same thing with the Bush White House. Every White House is. But I think in this case, there be, when you don't really believe in anything to begin with, all that's left is politics. So everything you do has a political motive, and that, in his case, is motivating the base. The, the, the question, I think, the most important question here is, is there anything that Trump can do? And this this gets back to the the the, uh, the the long-held Trump belief that what was it he said that he could go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and people would still stay with him. So we we've learned now that that's probably true. Like there is a hardcore base, at least a quarter of the Republican Party. It depend who he shot. That, that's true. But the the question then is despite all the chaos that we see, despite all the meltdowns, despite all the disarray at the White House, he still pretty popular with Republicans in general. If you take a look at the crosstabs of polls, he's somewhere, uh, you know, between 85 and 90 percent of Republicans still support him. And that's keeping him from from crater, right? It's like yeah. that it's not making him popular overall by any stretch, but it's keeping him. It's keeping him afloat. It's keeping right. him in the hunt. So the question to me is how many books, how much craziness over there at the White House can he sustain before he starts to lose the more mainstream Republicans before and so the question is does he drop at some point does he drop from 90 to 70 among Republicans you know and that I think uh, suddenly begins to change the dynamic in a very important and material way if that happens so back back in March Nevada Senator Dean Heller uh, said to a room of conservatives that Anthony Kennedy was going to retire and he said that it would motivate the Republican base for the midterm elections. So he, he was right on the first score. Uh, is he right on the second? Chris, you sounded pretty skeptical about the, the potential for something like this or, or any kind of single policy event, even something as big as a Supreme Court nomination, to, to move uh, much of anything yeah, I think, at yeah, this point. I think Trump is hoping that around the edges, uh, the tax cuts, the economy, and the Supreme Court uh, picks – help motivate folks. When you talk to um, folks running these House campaigns about Donald Trump's impact on these on these races, they tend to tell you that, you know, Democrats are motivated. They're jazz. They know that's going to happen. They see Trump as an asset when it comes to having someone to rally around. And also, really, they don't see as big a problem at the moment um, over the general election because it's one concentrated date that we know is happening and Republicans have historically done well, um, you know, in midterms and also um, have done a better job of rallying people around the idea that these Supreme Court picks or upcoming picks are, are something that you would turn out for. Exit polls have showed that Republicans do better around that issue than Democrats. So uh, I guess those might be the things that they're hoping will will um, help match the Democratic intensity. But the idea that, um, you know, that that Donald Trump is going to for you know, a couple months or even a month be able to draft off of off of a, a Supreme Court pick is, is just hard to believe when the storyline is changing day to day. And the biggest thing is he just won't let um, a story like that break through because he'll send, you know, 17 other tweets and, and, and distract the whole conversation. It's really him that's standing in the way, not anyone else. And here's a fatal flaw in that argument, though. 
who gets excited by tax cuts? No one. You know, you, you know, maybe, uh, you know, there are some elites in the Republican Party that get jazzed up by that, but that's not going to turn out anyone in the Republican Party. Trump knows this as well. I mean, in part, he can't drive that message because he doesn't have the discipline, but also because he doesn't want to, and neither do the people that are closest to him and whispering in his ear about the politics. Do you think the Trump base gives a crap about the tax cuts? No. That's why we see him always veer toward the dog whistle stuff, towards the, uh, he wants to run a cultural war election, and that's what would get him elected in 2020. And so here we're talking about Molly Tibbetts, the Iowa College student who was uh, recently tragically murdered by uh, what appears to be an undocumented immigrant. He wants to talk about the NFL. He wants to talk about the flag. He wants to talk about the lack of respect for uh, law enforcement. He wants to talk about the kinds of things that animate his base. And that's why he always veers away from the tax cuts. Not to mention the tax cuts already happened, right? And we know that people don't turn out as a thank you, you know, to the Republican Party. They turn out for things that are going to happen in advance or, you know, happen in their future. And that might mean a border wall or, you know, stopping MS-13 or the other issues you talked about. So they want to be motivated by something that he tells them he's going to do, not not something that he said he already did over a year ago. All right. Well, I think I think that's a great place to leave it. Chris, thank you so much for joining us to walk us through that. Yeah, thank you. And Charlie, thank you as always for being here. Scott, thank you so much for inviting me this week. You're a very, very kind friend. I appreciate that. Our producer this week is Jenny Ament with help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you so much for listening this week. We will talk to you again next week. I know my DEFCONs.